0: Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at Pratt Free Library. And this evening, it is my pleasure to welcome all of you on behalf of Dr. Carla Hayden, our CEO, the boards of trustees and directors, and the staff of Pratt Free Library to our gorgeous library. This evening, we have a special speaker here. And I started reading his book last evening and I tell you I was enthralled so I think we're in for a treat. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Cameron McWurther. He is a staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He graduated beta, beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude from Hamilton College where he majored in history. He earned a master's degree from Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism And he has worked for several news organizations, including the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the Detroit News. He has been awarded a Thomas J. Watson Fellowship for Research in Eritrea and the Sudan, and a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard University, where he conceived this book. He currently works for the Wall Street Journal as a reporter. And he lives in Decatur, Georgia, with his wife and two children. As a librarian, we're always reading reviews, and I just wanted to mention these, these couple of reviews that talks about this remarkable book, Red Summer. And in our book list, it states that this book is a riveting account of the summer that transformed American race relations. Publisher Weekly states that the author brings a journalistic, diligent digging and skillful storytelling to this historical account. And the Pulitzer Prize winner author, David Levering Lewis wrote that, McWhirter's comprehensive history of the terrible red summer of 1919 reminds us that because our failures at democracy are also very big, we have to be even better for understanding why. It is my pleasure to have as our speaker, Mr. McWurter. Thank, Thank, Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you for coming out on a very hot, sweltering night. Uh, it's late July, uh, and so it's boiling in Washington and Baltimore areas. And, of course, uh, this was when the, the main riots occurred of the Red Summer. I'm going to walk around a little bit, and uh, oh. oop. my notes. <laughs> this is going to be a very short talk tonight. I gave this talk. I gave a talk about my book just a few, uh, about a month before the book came out, at my college because I had my college reunion, and I just yammered away. I went on and on for an hour, twenty minutes. I just went on and on, and I'm not going to do that to you tonight. Uh, when someone writes a book that, you know, that's in your head for so long, and when you finally start talking in public about it, you just can't stop yourself. So I'm really going to try to restrain myself tonight, because obviously I think this is a fascinating subject, and I think it is pivotal to our understanding of modern race relations. Uh, it really was, in my mind, and the more I researched, researched this, the more I thought it was the birth of the, civil, of the modern civil rights movement. Um, and... It came out of the violence that is I'm about to describe, so uh, I'm going to take this microphone off. This is these are the major incidents of the red summer, but there were many 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 more than this, and as you can see, they were our our modern understanding of race riots is that they were uh I think probably if you stop somebody in the street, they would say, well, a race riot is black kids breaking into a Korean shoe store in Los Angeles. That's a riot. That's a race riot. Well, in the breadth of American history, that's absolutely not true. In the breadth of American history, from when the first slaves were brought here in 1619, race riots, the vast majority of race riots were uh, white mobs attacking either black individuals or black neighborhoods. And in 1919 was the apex of this type of violence. You see San Francisco, Omaha, Nebraska... A lot of people don't even know that there were black people in Omaha, Nebraska, but there were, uh, there are. Chicago, major city in the north, Washington, D.C., New London, Connecticut, Bisbee, Arizona. Buffalo Soldiers were stationed down there, and they they were near there, and they had come in for a 4th of July celebration. They ended up uh, in a a huge uh, gun battle with uh, white locals. Longview, Texas. And then of course many, many uh, riots and lynchings in the south. These rolled out, they began in April of 1919 and they rolled out throughout the summer until petering out about November of 1919. So um, I'm going to just uh, go over some notes on uh Oh, great. Okay. Um I want to read the final two lines of a poem called If We Must Die by the poet Claude McKay, who was a Jamaican-American uh, uh, poet. And it, uh, the last two lines are, Like men will face the murderous cowardly pack pressed to the wall dying but fighting back. This poem is a—it uh, has no mention of race in it whatsoever. But when it was published in, in July of 1919 in a small publication every black newspaper in america republished it and every black person knew it and it was very clear to them what it meant which is we're not going to take this anymore we're not going to take the violence that had been perpetrated against us and we're going to stand up and start fighting back and that took all forms it took amazing political organization for the first time in american history and it took literally going into the streets with guns and this is a story primarily about Americans fighting for constitutional rights in the, the, by the, the NAACP, which had been a small sort of do gooderish group, uh, mainly led by white people at the beginning of 1919. By the end of 1919 is an enormously powerful black organization dominated and led by black people. And they have a very clear political agenda, which isn't uh, radical politics. It isn't a Bolshevik state. It's constitutional rights for everyone. Equal rights. Uh, at the time um, uh, at the time America was supposed to be on this great uh, uh, victory lap because we just won World War One. We had been one of the we had. it was our forces which had helped defeat the Germans. Um, we were Woodrow Wilson had just spent spent months in Versailles, fashioning the uh, the League of Nations. We were we were supposed to be the country on top. Everything was supposed to be hunky dory. Uh, this is a political cartoon that was running at the time. As you can see, it was absolutely an age of panic. Everyone was in complete panic. There were terrorists, uh, anarchists planting bombs. There was. Uh, Terrible inflation, huge unemployment, there were, uh, the Soviets had taken over, uh, the Bolsheviks had taken over Russia, there was fighting in, in the Ukraine, Jewish people were being killed in the Ukraine, uh, Armenians were being killed in Turkey, Indians were being shot by British colonial forces in India, it was a time of absolute chaos. Huge labor strikes in the United States and, um, and this pervasive fear of communism. So, in this, in, into this was the racial issues that we've always been facing in this country, n- exacerbated manifold. So, what were some of, the, some of the points of contention that were going on that year? One was black soldiers. Black soldiers had served by the hundreds of thousands in World War I, They'd been recruited from small towns in the south and big cities in the north. Most of them went over and were serving in France as in quartermaster units. They were pro- providing supplies, stevedores. But tens of thousands had fought at the front lines and fought so very bravely. And when they were in France, they were treated incredibly well. I, uh, I uh, did a radio interview today with Dan Rodericks, the uh, columnist for The Sun. And he was telling me a story about interviewing a black World War I veteran who remembered eating escargot for the first time in his life in a small town in France and how well the the French people had treated him and given him all these elaborate meals. And so all these soldiers had gone over there to fight uh, for democracy. That was the message. Oh. I thought I was having a stroke. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, The... uh, so these soldiers had gone over to fight, and they were told, you're fighting for democracy. You're fighting for, to, keep, to make the world safe for democracy. They come home in their uniforms. Many of them lived in the South. They crossed the Mason-Dixon line, and they're suddenly put in segregated railroad cars. They get home. They're treated awfully. There's uh, many, many examples of veterans who had risked their lives being mistreated when they got back. Uh, one minor example, I have a letter that in the book from a veteran named James Campbell who lived in Arkansas, in a town in Arkansas. He comes back after fighting bravely in the war, and um, whites sneer at him and spit at his uniform. And he eventually, uh, they say uh, race, race, obviously horribly racial things at him, and he is so offended he moves to St. Louis, and he writes to a magazine, I felt safer in the trenches than in Arkansas. So that was one huge component of contention. Uh, the white soldiers and then the white people back home when these soldiers returned didn't want to see uh, blacks try, you know, walking around in their uniforms or uh, having any, in any way an air of, of equality. At the same time, uh, black people who had seen how they were treated in France didn't want to go back to how things had been. W.E. Du Bois, who went to visit the soldiers at the time, wrote this, uh, writes this very sad essay in The Crisis about just going to dinner in Paris and with some black uh, white colleagues who were French. And what a joy it was and what a relaxing night it was, and then how angry that made him because he knew that that was impossible in the United States. Uh, So that's one huge factor. Another huge factor that was taking place was black uh, farmers in the South, sharecroppers, obviously had been mistreated forever and never could catch a break economically until 1919. Cotton prices were going through the roof, and that was the year that even a sharecropper could make money. So they were making money. They were buying cars. They were buying houses. They were... uh, uh, sending their families up north as part of the Great Migration, and this caused lots of friction. Also, uh, the Great Migration, which had begun before World War I, really took off after World War I, because uh, there was no immigration from Europe, of course. So northern industry, places like Baltimore, ter- if I guess you can call Baltimore the north, but you know, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Detroit, they all looked to the south for cheap labor, which was non-unionized, so, and, and there was great tension between black people and the unions at the time, which uh, the industrialists loved, because it meant uh, uh, friction in the workplace and it would in, uh, retard expansion of the unions. Um, so there were, there were major, going back to this map, Some, there's different types of violence that took place. So, for example, Chicago was an enormous labor riot, basically. It went on for f- seven days. Washington, D.C. was basically a military riot. Sailors and soldiers rioting for days unchecked. San Francisco was a military riot. These little um, uh, incidents, w- I opened the book with an incident in, in a rural part of Georgia called Carswell Grove Baptist Church. This, uh, these were lynchings. Ellisville, Mississippi, was probably the worst lynching I've ever... One of the worst lynchings I've ever read about uh, took place there. 10,000 people uh, in broad daylight witnessing a man being murdered and then uh, his body being uh, distributed as souvenirs. Um, There were... uh, uh, This town, Corbin, Kentucky, uh, there was uh, a riot in which... A white mob basically made every black person overnight leave the town, get on a railroad car, and put. They forced them onto railroad cars and shipped them out. Um, So there were various all this violence took various forms, but it was constant and it kept rolling and rolling through the summer, and the nation became more and more and more panicked about it. Um, One of the contributing factors. Two two more contributing factors to the violence were the standard racism that we all know. You know this idea that you know that it's been around since since the first slaves were brought here. You know blacks are uh, lazy and they're simultaneously scary and violent and they're you know all these weird mixed sta- you know all these all the things we've learned. But then there was this other more creepy, uh, if I can say so, type of racism that evolved at this time, which became very, very pervasive. It was, sort of a, it was based in Darwinistic ideas, sort of this scientific racism. These books started to come out that were, advoc- that were discussing uh, the threat to the white race. And there, was, there were two main proponents in the United States, a man named Lothrop Stoddard, another man named Madison Grant, These were Ivy-educated professor types who wrote books of The Passing of the Great Race and uh, what was the other books called The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. These books were incredibly popular and all were, they were even more um, dangerous than just bald racism because they were all painted in the patina of, of, uh, this is science, we're explaining science to you. I'm going to read one section from Stoddard's book. Democratic ideals among a homogeneous population of Nordic blood, as in England or America, is one thing, but it is quite another for for the white man to share his blood with or entrust his ideals to brown, yellow, black, or red men. This is suicide, pure and simple, and the first victim of this amazing folly will be the white man himself. So this was this uh, fear, this panicky uh, idea was being pervaded among all kinds of uh, these books were incredibly popular and everybody was reading them. One huge fan later of The Passing of the Great Race was a little German guy named Adolf Hitler who loved these books. Now there were amazing heroes in this summer and I could go on and on about them but I'm going to focus on two. One of them is James Weldon Johnson who was a an incredible uh, person who I think everybody needs to know. Vivian and I were just talking about how everyone needs to know a lot more about him. He was an amazing guy, born in Jacksonville, Florida, to a relatively middle-class family. Uh, He was a lawyer. He was a diplomat. He wrote a novel, a very prominent novel. He wrote poems. He wrote Lift Every Voice and Sing with his brother. They wrote songs. Uh, And these were all sort of things he did on the side. I mean, he was... He was an amazing guy. And W.E. Du Bois comes to him in 1916 and says, I want you to join the NAACP. And he agrees to do it, but he's very worried because he he's mainly considers himself a literary figure. And he doesn't want to hurt his writing, but he joins. And he dives into it with this amazing energy. And in 1919, he travels the entire country by railroad all over the place, delivering hundreds of speeches recruiting tens of thousands of people. And the NAACP becomes this amazing political organization in a very short amount of time. He, he, it, it had about 40,000 members at the beginning of the year. It has about 90,000 members by the end. And almost all of those are black people, and they are very politically savvy, and, they're, and they have very clear political goals, which is not... Was not the case for the NAACP before that, and um, it carried their goals. If you read, if you if you get the Crisis magazine from that period, and you look at it and you read the goals, their objectives, it's the objectives of Martin Luther King. They're the same. You know, they're very very simple. Um, and I want to read one quote from Johnson in a speech he delivered in November 1919, and to me it sounds like Martin Luther King. But he said. Uh, We've got to wake up the conscience of the American people to hold a mirror to the, before the people and let the nation see itself, a sinning nation, for the American spirit is not dead. We need an organization of the white people and the black people to save America from mob violence. Patience is a virtue, but not always. I want to see the Negro patient, but I want to see him fight incessantly for what he believes in his, is his right. No one is more confident than the American Negro, for, for he knows that his right that he is right, and he has Almighty God on his side, and he can't lose. Um, so I'm going to talk briefly about one riot, Washington D.C., just to show you roughly wh- what happened and who was who who were primarily responsible. Obviously, the rioters were primarily responsible, but uh, the the governments often in these riots did, waited, and delayed, and didn't, didn't take action, and the next thing you know, things got out of control very fast. And I was talking to people today, uh, you can stop, there are many reasons riots start, we've gone over some of them today, what, what are the causes of these riots, but stopping a riot is incredibly easy. The social issues may remain, but you can stop a riot. You get troops to the corner, street corners with their guns, and they're well disciplined, riots stop. In in certainly in Chicago and in Washington, that did not happen. So Washington, in July of 1919, you had had weeks and weeks of the newspapers uh, publishing publishing articles about crimes that had been committed in the metro Washington area, and often there would it, the stories would contain some sort of line you know, some black, some black guy did it, or there, was, or there would be headlines, Black Beast Sought," even though there was no real proof that a black person had committed the crime. It wasn't clear. And so the NAACP had been complaining about it, saying it was making people uh, a- agitating, and the newspapers largely ignored them. Then on July 18th, a white woman who worked for a for a, naval depart- a part department of the Navy, a section of the Navy, was walking down the street and was jostled by two other two black guys walking down the street and they hit uh, her umbrella or something. It's not really clear what happened. But that's basically it. The guy, one guy was taken into custody for jostling her and then he was released. But the rumor that came out was that a white woman had been raped. A white, a white, the white wife of a... Of a naval officer had been raped. And the soldiers and sailors, the city was teeming with decommissioned soldiers and sailors, and they began to riot immediately. And they began attacking any black person they could find, pulling people off of trolley cars, uh, just beating people cu- coming out of theaters, and the, the, war, the battle was on. And meanwhile, up around Howard University, which was a primarily black neighborhood around there, uh, black veterans got up on their rooftops. These guys had just fought in World War I. They got up on the rooftops and started sniping at people coming around their neighborhood. So it it quickly degenerated into absolute chaos. Woodrow Wilson, he was uh, laying in the the White House. He had dysentery at the time, Uh, did nothing. He could hear the gunshots, he did nothing. Uh, People were pleading with him to take some kind of military action, and he didn't for days and days. Finally, things got so bad uh, the police were comp- the district police were completely overwhelmed. He finally agreed to have the soldiers come in and a disciplined uh, general who had fought in Europe stopped the riot and, and he's, it was over within an hour, but it had gone on for three or four days, and nobody had done anything about it. The world was stunned by this riot because it was uh, in Washington, it was in the capital of the country that had just won the war in Europe. How could this happen? Um, and all these, uh, all these newspapers around the world were writing about it. And I'm going to quote one German newspaper. They, uh, in, in an editorial they wrote, which this is in translation. I don't read German. But the editorial is The Black Peril. That was the name of it. And it talked about how crazy, what was going on in the United States. And it ends with this line. The disorders now reported are but the beginning. If the Negroes can find a leader, perhaps already they have one. We might yet experience all sorts of things. Perhaps someday a black president, which obviously happened. But um, they didn't think it was a good thing. Um, Now, I want to talk about one hero, another hero of the riots of this period in Omaha, Nebraska. Edward Smith was a white progressive mayor. He uh, wasn't particularly involved in helping civil rights organizations or the NAACP or anyone, but he, there was a riot. A, a, a black man was accused of raping a white woman. The man was taken into custody and sent to the Douglas County Courthouse, which was this enormous building in downtown Omaha, and a mob of thousands came out to kill him. They wanted him lynched. Smith and several police um, Hold up in the building, they tried to the mob tried to set it on fire. they broke into the lower floors, they destroyed it. finally, um, the the army, which was just outside of town the u s army never came in until much later. Uh, the mayor comes down to meet the crowd and he tells them you 're not going to get this man or this man 's going to have a trial and you 're not going to get him un- unless it 's over my dead body the mob takes that as an absolute invitation, and they tried to kill him. They, they strung him up on a lamppost, and only through the intervention of one man was he saved. He was so badly injured. This was a man who was like 60 years old. He'd had a, he would had a metal, because of an accident earlier, he had a metal plate in his head. He didn't have to do this. And believe me, there were tons of politicians who just walked away from these kinds of situations throughout, throughout the, uh, the red summer. But the, he stood up. And he was, as they took him away, they thought he was dead. The newspapers uh, reported he was dead. But he, he survived. And when he got, when he, when he regained consciousness in the hospital, the first thing out of his mouth was, what did they do with the colored man? Was he all right? Unfortunately, he wasn't. He was, he was killed. Um, and just as an aside, one of, the, one of the witnesses of that violence was Henry Fonda, surprisingly, the actor, who happened to be, he was a young teenager and he was, his father brought him to to witness it because he said, I, "I want you to see this. I want you to see what people can do and Fonda always said it absolutely changed his life, but uh, Smith was a quiet hero. I think he you know he didn 't have to do this, and there were other examples of of, of, the, of political leaders who did the right thing, uh, but there were also many, many more who did not um, so i 'm just going i 'm going to sum up uh, there was a there was a uh, British journalist named Stephen Graham who traveled the south and, and parts of the north that year, and he wrote a travelogue about it and he 's in Shadydale, Georgia, which is not far from Atlanta, near where i live and he um, he was interviewing a white woman an older white woman there, and she said this she said there 's no managing i'm, I'm trying i can 't do a southern accent so i 'm not going to even try but he wrote it in this sort of dialecty way it 's uh, there's no managing the niggas now. He spells it N-E-E-J-A-H-S. They got so bigoty since the war. Bigoty is B-I-G-G-E-T-Y. But that sums it up. Black people weren't going to take what had been before. It just wasn't going to happen. And there was no way anybody was going to be able to, you know, to put the genie back in the bottle. It was, it was forever changed. And that doesn't mean... There wasn't horrible racial incidents and there wasn't horrible battles to be fought afterward. It doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of work to do, but this was the beginning of it. And I mean, I wrote in the book that it's much more, it's akin to Lexington and Concord as opposed to Yorktown. But this is the beginning of the end of institutional segregation in this country. Thanks. Any questions? Anybody? Uh, Very good question. Very good question, and it depended, obviously. It ranged. But I'll give you two examples. Ellisville, Mississippi. uh, Man accused of assaulting a white woman. John Hartfield. He runs away because he knows they're going to lynch him. And they catch him after about two weeks. And they shoot him when they they see Somebody shoots him with one of the posse. And he's really, he's fatally injured. They capture him. They take him to the courthouse. To to this small town, and they um, they take him to a doctor, not to get him better so that he faces trial, but to keep him alive for twenty four hours. They want to keep this man alive for twenty four hours so they can have the biggest lynching party that they could organize. The word goes out throughout Southern Mississippi that there is going to be a riot. I mean, there is going to be a lynching, and they it's it's it was it was like a festival. Politicians came and gave speeches. People handed out postcards. It was a huge celebration. And the uh, one key important point is he was, the, the governor, Bilbo, was petitioned by the NAACP. You've got to stop this. I mean, we're talking about major newspapers, published headlines, uh, 3,000 v- to witness lynching. Notice the two witness. Like, it, 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 this isn't, hadn't happened. It was going to happen, and nobody tried to stop it. Mississippi government did nothing. The NAACP requested the federal government to take action. Hey, this is a, good, this is a state issue. We can't get involved. So the next day, Hartsfield was, was murdered. Um, and with the absolute complicity of the, of the Mississippi government, which was the Democratic government there. Um, in Chicago, I would say it was, uh, you had a Republican mayor and a Republican governor, and to me that was much more of an example of um, not racial complicity, but uh, they both had huge egos. Both, po- both political leaders had the delusions that they were going to be the next Republican candidate for president because it was known that the Republicans were in a strong position to take the White House the next year. So they, neither of them wanted to ask for help from Wilson. If you had to ask for federal troops, that was a sign of weakness. And if the if the Mayor of Chicago had to ask the governor, who he w- potentially was going to run against. It was a sign of weakness, even though clearly his police department couldn't handle the situation. Uh, very, it was a very confused situation. I mean, there were elements of the, of the Army that were, uh, were really, de- really defended these black soldiers who had fought very bravely and were fiercely arguing within the, within the military that we've got to get good jobs for these guys. They're coming back. They did great service. We need to... Uh, we need to do right by them, and then there was a lot of people who were, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't want these guys having weapons. There was a whole battle before the, before the recruitment of black soldiers, to n- not recruit them. Well, we don't want to train these guys to know how to use weapons. What are you crazy? You know, southern politicians were not for that, and there were huge um, elements of the officer corps who were from the south, who were white men from the south. So. It was, uh, on the whole, it was, uh, certainly Washington was a great example. They needed They needed military, a military officer, a military commander could have stopped that in a second and didn't. So it was a mixed bag, and it certainly wasn't handled well. Um, first of all, Woodrow Wilson was, was the more I read the, wrote, you know, the, he was a terrible president in a lot of ways. But he was really a racist, and he was, um, he watched birth of a nation in the white house thought it was great in part because they quote one of his histories in it uh he liked to tell darky jokes that was he thought those were funny he um but you know that i would almost say that's trivial compared to what he what he did when he took office because he made promises to certain black leaders that if you vote for me if you back me in in 1912. Hey, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take care of you. And as soon as he got in, the bureaucracies were segregated, and they hadn't been under Republican administrations. And he did other things. And, well, and also throughout the Red Summer, I found, I w- in my research, I was able to find one offhanded sentence he made in a speech regarding the violence. Something to the effect of, isn't it terrible that there's, we're having this sort of fighting. When he had, um, when, and it wasn't as though people weren't pleading with him to, to, to take action or at least to make some sort of public remark, and he didn't. Uh, he, kept, he sent letters back, you know, talk to your governor. You know, your governor is really, that's, that sounds like a bad situation there. Talk to the governor. Um, what was your, uh, Pershing was uh, far better than other uh, generals. We, one thing we haven't talked about too much tonight was the whole communist fear. All the generals were, um, they saw uh, IWW, wobblies under every <laughs> bushel. So they saw any violence, any violence was often perceived by military leaders as the work of radicals, and, and uh, radicals trying to impact, uh, to work among black people, which, frankly, I found no evidence of. Uh, or it, it, black people, there were radicals trying to recruit blacks and they were doing a terrible job of it and they weren't getting nowhere in 1919 later that would change but at the time uh, the vast majority, I mean with the exception of Marcus Garvey most people were joining the NAACP which is, their agenda was far from what any of us today would call radical unless you call equal rights radical uh, oh and why I write the book um, because I have been uh, any well, there's a bunch of reasons, but uh, I have been fascinated by racial violence. I worked in Detroit. I worked in other every city where I've worked as a reporter that has a history of racial violence, uh, a race riot. And so I was on a fellowship a couple of years ago, and I, that was my research subject, was racial violence in, in American cities. And c- very quickly, the Red Summer popped up as an important subject that n- nobody knew anything about. I grew up in Chicago. I was 41 before I learned about red summer i was interviewed today by a man a a black man in his 60s at at a radio station in chicago he never had heard of it you know how could that be Uh, and it was the chicago riot for example was the biggest it went on for a week and it shut down all you know huge section of industry in the united states so that was baltimore had one uh riot that was uh Quickly shut down because it happened later in the uh, in the year, and local officials got hip to what was going on because local officials. Um, I don't think it was any sort of enlightenment that was taking place, but they realized it was really bad press. Cities were at that time were very Babbity, you know, like, you know, like Babbitt. Uh, they wanted there was a lot of boosters. Everyone was joining Kiwanis clubs, and they all wanted to. Uh, make sure their city didn't look bad. And so police would move very quickly. And in that case, it was soldiers, I think, from Fort Meade who were traveling through a black neighborhood and were drunk, and they started rioting, and the police shut up really quickly and shut it down. Two other Baltimore connections um, uh, would be Mencken. He wrote that uh, uh, he writes to James Alden Johnson this very respectful letter in which he says, you know, you were right to predict these riots, and here they are. And, and then he writes to a white friend of his in very racist language. I think it's like the, the same day or the next day. Uh, he writes. He writes, which I think is much more insightful when he's being racist because he's being much more honest. He writes, the coons have fought back, and they're eager for the band to play. And obviously, it scared him. You know, and it was interesting because, and he was talking about Washington, but he, to him. Uh, and And I think, to many white Americans, it was a scary thing that and and I can tell you after washington um, after Washington, black people were thrilled you could read if you if you look at a black magazine at that time or a black newspaper, people were writing letters about time about time we fought back and uh and then in Chicago, they fought back even harder I think that um I think these incidents are starting to be written about. Um, I think that uh, the Red Summer, the whole aspect of the Red Summer hasn't really been explored in part because it was so horrifying. There there was a white man who worked for the NAACP named Herbert Seligman who wrote a book. He worked, uh, again, like the other NAACP members. He risked his life going to, he went to Vicksburg, Mississippi at a lynching, and I don't know how he got out of there alive. He was a little Jewish guy from New York. I don't know how he, he was interviewing people and they were being very candid. I don't know how he got out of there. But he, he wrote a book about the summer, and he said that it was such a horrible event and so traumatic that people wanted to forget it as soon as it was passed. And I think there's an element of that on both, uh, both white and black people. But I also think, um, you know, the events of, we're a nation of, you know, 15 minutes. You know, what happened last week? And uh, I think there's an element of that. People move past quickly and they want to. Uh, go on to the next crisis. And and also the 60s. I mean, that dominated, that became people's views of, of race riots. Black newspapers were really burgeoning at this time. The Chicago Defender was the main e- example. The Chicago Defender did, uh, was obviously supposed to be for Chicago, but it started to be carried on the railroad lines by porters down to the south. So it became an enormously popular newspaper in the south. And the Defender uh, would write editorials saying, get up north, get out of there, you know, come on up. And that really helped fuel the Great Migration. They also had incredible editorial power. So, for example, in Longview, Texas, there's a riot that was sparked because of an article in the Chicago Defender. It showed up there on a Wednesday, and the riot was, it was about an incident that occurred in Longview. Uh, a, a man had been killed. And uh, because of that article, there was a riot. So it was very, they were very influential. Also, The Crisis, which was then NAACP's magazine, which if you have a chance and you're in Enoch Pratt, uh, take a look at the microfilm. They're amazing publications. No, because it was a, the tr- that train had already left the station. You know, they were already, prohibition was coming, and also during the war, they had enforced certain types of prohibition already, in, and many southern states were already dry. Uh, now, that said, uh, people could get booze, and they did. And a lot of these riots, Knoxville, uh, the mob heroically to defend, you know, to defend Southern womanhood, heroically ransacks a courthouse to uh, try to kill a, a black defendant who's already gone. The, the sheriff had already moved him to Chattanooga. And then they quickly break into the captured liquor and get drunk and demolish the downtown. You know, that happened over and over again. If, people, if a mob found booze, they drank it. It depends on the riot. Chicago had 38 killed and that was a very specific number and they did a great thorough examination. Washington we have no idea because the federal government never took any action. Um, Arkansas, Elaine, Arkansas, the best guesses are 200 to 300 black people killed. Uh, Nobody really, but no one will ever know. We'll never have any idea. Um, Whereas a lot of the, so it really is impossible to say. I mean, Some riots, we know, you know, two, three people were at least were killed. But in many of these larger riots, as you can imagine, riots were enormously confusing events. And then also, no one was keeping the records like we do today, so hard to say. Oh, you mean to like settle in France? Uh, No, no, they they weren't. They weren't. There were no. There weren't passports. They weren't getting passports. They were. They were there to fight and then go home. home, Yeah. Like oh to say, Well I mean there were people who moved to Paris uh, Certainly jazz artists were moving to Paris They were very popular But um, not in huge numbers Most people were wanted to come home Most people had just fought a war you know Most soldiers had just fought a war They wanted to go home to their families and settle down And since we just fought for democracy How about we get a little too And um, they ended up uh, uh, running straight into uh, Jim Crow and other problems
0: Thank you for that fascinating speech.
1: So thank you very much for coming.